I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers on the George Floyd civil case and also the future of policing. What impact will it have? We saw tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets of the United States across the summer once this incident happened. We've seen demands for change in policing. We've seen demands for change in accountability. And as the trial gets underway of the police officer believed to be responsible and charged in the murder of George Floyd. We're taking a look at what impact this is going to have on policing in America, as well as on civil rights and human rights. Joining me for this conversation is Devin Jacob. He's a national civil rights attorney. He's also the co-counsel in the George Floyd civil case. He's also a former police officer. Devin, great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you so much for being with us. Also joining us is Dr. Robert Gonzalez. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice at St. John's University and a former assistant commissioner of training for the NYPD and former NYPD officer for more than two decades. Um, Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney, handled many big cases from the local level, state, and also federal. He's also managing partner of the Tucker Moore Law Group, and he is a former prosecutor in Kings County, New York, aka Brooklyn. Charles, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Lisa. We, we, we really appreciate it. Charles, you've handled a lot of cases, a lot of different types of cases. With the incident where George Floyd lost his life, what outraged you the most? Just the tragedy behind the whole incident. Um, the disregard for human life uh, on such a uh, magnitude level. Uh, and the disregard by an individual who is charged to protect the public. Um, in a span of nine minutes, he not only uh, ended the life for Mr. Floyd, unfortunately, but really shoot, you know, put a black cloud on the uh, good work that police officers are doing every day uh, to show that when, when one individual shows such a disregard and, and treat an individual in such an inhumane way, it really, it hurt my heart uh, to see that play out on, on, on the streets in, in Minnesota. No, definitely. Dr. Robert Gonzalez, looking at the, that as a, a former police officer and somebody who did the training, we're going to talk about some of the tactics and te techniques coming up in this show. But what was your initial reaction when you saw that horrific video that just, that stunned so many of us and saddened us? Well, like you mentioned, Lisa, it was, it was I was stunned and not just me, but every police officer. What makes this incident unique is that the community and the police both agree that this was abuse of force, abuse of authority and criminal. My colleagues in law enforcement all agree that this was this was a murder that took place and we all viewed it. We all saw it. So that's what makes this incident unique. And that's why there'll be a lot of changes, not just locally, but nationally in law enforcement, because police and community agree that this incident was the catalyst to a lot of changes that are going to take place. Devin, um, Devin Jacob, when you're close to the family, you're close to the case, you're working with them on the, the George Floyd civil case. What was your reaction when you first learned about this? Well, again, as a former police officer watching uh, the video, it, it was it was just shocking that four separate police officers would believe that their conduct is OK as it's occurring. And this didn't happen in a back alley. This happened in broad daylight 
on video, knowingly on video in front of a crowd of people, which evidences the fact that this was systemic. This is something that these officers were comfortable doing out in public for the world to see and and were in a sense shocked when they were uh, called on the carpet for their conduct. So that's what struck you was that it was almost almost this 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 sick nonchalance like this is business as usual that type of appearance. Yeah, the the fact that the fact that today in today's day and age, now that we have cell phone videos popping up all the time, and we're reviewing this type of conduct or similar type conduct often, that a police department would still have officers who, again, they're not doing this at three a.m. in in a right. dark alley, but broad daylight, heavy traffic in front of a crowd on display as if they're proud and look at what we're doing for you, community. That evidence is a real problem. Charles, when when you saw that video of what of George Floyd that went on for so many minutes, you saw what was going on that resonated, especially in the black community because of systemic abuse that black men and black women have endured at the hands of police that's gone unfocused and, and has not received that kind of attention. Give us a sense of the emotional charge of that. Well, the emotional charges, uh, Attorney Jacob pointed out, it, it spokes to a, a systemic issue that has plagued the black community, uh, you know, arguably for decades. Uh, and in some respects, since the inception of the police departments uh, across the nation, uh, which, you know, by its formation, you know, were, were laden with racism from its inception, which becomes part of the problem. You know, it's like once you start an institution like that uh, with such a a dislike and a disdain for a group of people, mainly African-Americans, and you try to dispense um, criminal policing or policing in some respect, and you do it in an unequal fashion and causing injury, deaths. I mean, you know, I mean, pick, pick from all the major cities across America, you know, you we've seen it, you know, we've seen it play out in New York with, on, with the Amadou Diallo incident, you know, and the black community is just sick and tired. Uh, like, when does it stop? And we're hoping, and I, and I believe it, a lot of African-Americans feel that now that it's on front street, so to speak, thank goodness for the technology, the technology has caught up to the issue. Uh, now it cannot It cannot be denied. It cannot be denied. All right. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be right back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Salute. This is General Steele from Smith & Wesson. And right now you're listening to Street Soldiers with your girl, Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 97. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about the George Floyd civil case, what happened to him, and also the trial of one of the police officers involved in his murder and charged with his murder. Joining me for this conversation, Devin Jacob. He's a national civil rights attorney. He's co-counsel in the George Floyd civil case. He's also a former police officer. Devin, great to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Also joining us, Dr. Robert Gonzalez, Assistant Professor of Criminal Justice at St. John's University, former Assistant Commissioner for Training with the NYPD, and also former NYPD officer for more than two decades. Rob, uh, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. 
Also Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you. Also joining us, Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney and managing partner of the Tucker Moore Law Group, a former prosecutor with Kings County, New York. That's Brooklyn. Um, Charles, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. Um, Dr. Rob Gonzalez, as a former NYPD officer, you're, you were in charge of the training that officers received. We remember, we recall what happened with Eric Garner, who was put in an illegal chokehold and died from that. And then that resulted in different types of training changing with the, with the NYPD. But when you look at what happened to George Floyd, what's, what struck you about the way the officers were behaving? Well, in, in, in different jurisdictions, they have different use of force policies. What needs to come out is there needs to be one national standard spearheaded by the Department of Justice on use of force guidelines. Again, you have different jurisdictions that operate differently as it relates to use of force. With New York State guidelines and New York City guidelines specifically, based on my experience, again, we cannot do chokeholds here in New York City. What we're finding out in this particular case is the way that he was restrained was considered an acceptable tactic. And I find that just very disturbing. So I think the Department of Justice needs to step up. They need to identify one use of force policy for every agency here in America. There are 17,000 law enforcement agencies. And depending on what state, what community, and what jurisdiction will dictate what your use of force policy is. So here in New York, it was extremely disturbing to New York City police officers. And again, I think all police officers thought that this particular incident was, again, very disturbing. There was, there was, no, there was no way to explain it away, no way, no way to justify it. Devin, what are your thoughts on that? Because you're part of a, a lawyer's group nationally trying to create police reform. And, and again, as speaking as a, a former police officer, how big a range is there and what's considered acceptable? And is it time for us to have some sort of national standard or national training standards for all departments, especially with our society so fluid and mobile now? Well, I think Dr. Gonzalez hit the nail on the head and that there needs to be a national standard uh, that, that is overseen by the federal government. Uh, but, but I would almost go one step further. I, I think instead of it just being a policy uh, from the, the Department of Justice, I, I think it needs to start with a legislative mandate. Uh, that way, the policy of the type of policing that's provided uh, does not change from administration to administration. Um, but, you know, to, to something that Attorney Tucker said, Said, you know, it, it's it's almost ridiculous to say that that race doesn't play into this. Now, is race the only issue? Probably not. Um, but the fact is, you know, the preamble to our Constitution, we the people, uh, referred to free white men, and um, they proceeded to to create a, a racist, sexist document. And then, when there were amendments to it, the Thirteenth Amendment, for instance, freeing slavery, they made an exception for criminals. And then, of course, we you know we, we had uh, sharecropping and, and other type of programs that basically put largely black people back into a criminal status and policing that grew out of a, a, a handshake with the Klan and with other white supremacist groups uh, to be slave patrols. And so to, to say that an organization that starts off on a, on a set of laws by people who intended there to be racism in the system that was created, and then with organizations that were, uh, again, intended to have a, a racist mission, um, and to say that today it doesn't factor in it is, is simply ridiculous. You say we, that's systemic. Charles, I see you shaking your head on that. It, absolutely. You know, to trace it back, you know, because when, when there's a problem, Lisa, you, in order to properly address it, you got to look at it and address it from its root. Otherwise, 
you know, you, you, it continues. All you do is window dressing. You don't really look at the issues. But if you look at the issues from its inception and see how these police departments from its foundation was set up, and Attorney Jacob is right, it would, they were set up to police mainly African-American as they were seen as the problem, the evil that needed to be, you know, uh, locked up, jailed, harassed, killed uh, in some respects. Uh, and then it, it perpetuates because once they're locked up, then the courts, you know, dispense, you know, Lady Justice has been peeking out from the blindfolds for years, right? We all know it. We practice in the courts. You know, we see the unequal justice that gets dispensed. In some respects, she takes off the blindfold and she's looking, you know, and she sees color and it causes uh, a disheartening for those who believe in, you know, uh, land of the free, home of the brave. We all are entitled to equal treatment under the law. And then when you lose the case and it's appealed or you try to hold those who are accountable, which what they're trying to do in, in the Derek Chauvin case, the, the sovereign immunity, the law protects them. And it's like when they break the law, you know, isn't justice uh, supposed to bring them into subjection of the law? And you're, you're raising an excellent point, Robin, everybody, you guys, please feel free to jump in with each other too. There, there's there's a sense in the community. And, and I think also too, it, it was just the, the George, you know, George Floyd's murder. It just, it, it just hit every single raw nerve that so many people of color have gone through, especially black men being stopped. We, we had the chief of department, Chief Scott was stopped by his own officers, oh, yeah. an, an African-American man. We had a deputy mayor of New York City. We've had very, and these were grown men. They weren't, you know, bumping loud hip hop music and wearing a hoodie. You know, they're, they're driving home from work. So it, it hit a lot of nerves, but there's a, a longstanding sense in the community through years and not just in New York, but around the United States where there's two systems of justice. There's one system of justice for regular people and another, uh, and a subset of that, if you're a person of color or low income, it's going to be a, a lot harder to get justice. And then a completely different set of rules for police officers who many people thought were above the law. What do you say to that, Rob? Well, what we're going to see with the George Floyd incident is a creation of civilian oversight boards, like what we have here in New York City. That's going to become a national trend. With New York State specifically, the governor came out with the executive order 203, which is requiring uh, the redesigning of law enforcement in all 500 police departments just here in New York State. And that deadline is April 1st. So all of these agencies are going to have to come up with a new plan for policing that's going to encourage community engagement civilian oversight boards, diversity, not just at the lower level, but also at the highest levels. We're going to see a national trend where people of color are going to be appointed as CEOs of law enforcement agencies, which is long overdue. Please, Devin, Devin. Uh, I'm sorry, if I can, you yeah, know, please. to expand on that issue as well. I mean, we, we have communities that began with redlining and restrictive housing covenants. You know, Black people were pushed out of white communities and pushed into other communities that have now, you know, for decades, you know, the families have grown in those areas. But then we have policing, which, you know, will we'll run SWAT teams and tactical teams into these communities, um, you, you know, that, that started with, with, with basically one hand behind their back. There were, you know, white people were given land and black people were not given land. So there was an, in, the country was started with such disparity. You know, the FBI keeps crime statistics, but they don't keep statistics on, on the, the amount of people killed in police custody. 
Right. Why do you think that is? I, I mean, the the fact is, if you're running SWAT teams into um, into certain communities and not others, or you're running them into certain communities and not, for instance, when was the last time you saw a SWAT team hit a university and get the people who are dealing drugs on campus? Right. This doesn't happen. And so, of course, the statistics are going to pan out that they had higher arrests when they have higher contact. All right. Well, coming up, the case against the Minneapolis police officers accused of murdering George Floyd. How strong is it? Is there any chance there could be some surprises ahead? We'll find out from our guests when we come back. What up? This is Trey Songz and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the George Floyd civil case and the criminal case against the police officers charged with his murder. Joining me for this conversation, Devin Jacob. He's a national civil rights attorney, co-counsel in the George Floyd civil case, and also a former police officer. Devin, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Lisa. My pleasure. Thank you. Also joining us is Dr. Robert Gonzalez. He's assistant professor of, of criminal justice at St. John's University, a former assistant commissioner for training with the NYPD and an NYPD officer for more than two decades. Rob, great to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. Also joining us is Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney and managing partner of the Tucker Moore Law Group. He's handled all kinds of cases from local, the local level to the federal level. He's also a former prosecutor in Kings County, New York, which is Brooklyn. Um, Charles, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Charles, if you can put on your prosecutor hat and the case against the police officers, I think the general public, um, which I'll speak for at this moment, I think a lot of people just feel like, why does there even need to be a case? Because we all saw the video and it was a long video. So there's no way of saying, well, you don't know what happened before that. We know what happened during those nine minutes. Um, what do you see with the case? Like what kind of case, how strong is it? Is there any chance that there's some kind of defense? Well, you know, for a lot of defense attorneys, uh, you know, the opportunity to persuade a jury of 12, you know, is is their best tool, right? To get all they need is one person to see it their way or to their client's benefit. As a prosecutor, you're looking to dispense justice and you believe you want to make sure that the, the, the you know, the ground and playing field is fair and that you're putting on a case that you believe uh, is in the interest of justice. So that also includes uh, whether or not uh, the this the proper venue is is proper. So, you know, you almost uh, I could feel the prosecution, um, you know, being torn in some respect, you know, with all of the publicity that is currently out there uh, in regards to you know, recent settlements of cases, you know, uh, connected to uh, the, the trial of uh, Officer Chauvin. So that plays into it um, because, you know, reasonable people can agree on some level uh, that uh, one of the 12 could have possibly have heard information um, that could possibly influence. I mean, well, you know, if uh, the municipal government uh, saw fit to uh, awarded settlement, then quite possibly uh, something was wrong. Um, when, uh, you know, someone as a prosecutor could reasonably understand that the municipal government uh, has different interests ahead of it. They have to, you know, decide 
the greater good uh, and not take into account possibly um, that, oh, well, there's this trial that's going on. They have to worry about the citizens as a whole and make their own decision uh, for the good of the entity itself. But do you think they're going to, let me just ask you this and bring in, bring in another guest. Do you think there is a, um, do, you, do you think they're going to make a real, a vigorous case? I mean, is there any case that they can possibly, you know, the, the case is like laid out for them. I mean, how much stronger can it be? Or are there any weaknesses? Well, again, it, the video speaks to one, you know, we'd like to believe, oh, this is a slam dunk, you know, and we've been trying cases a long time, you know. There's no case as a slam dunk. You know, I, I can, you, you think your evidence is concrete. It takes one person to misunderstand something. And all of a sudden, what you thought was a slam dunk is not. So for the prosecution, he has to stick to the facts and he has to pro provide it in such a way that is persuasive enough for them to believe that this, you know, this incident that happened, this tragedy that unfolded on the streets is beyond a reasonable doubt. There is no doubt where the defense is going to be able to say, well, you know, this only shows you, this doesn't show you the intent of the officer, you know, their mindset at the time. That video doesn't show you that. And that with the policy that Dr. Gonzalez spoke of earlier, if, if, if the policy is, is such that gave them the right to do it, then where's the criminal behavior? I don't know, Devin, what about, Devin, what about that? Uh, well, I, I'm going to refrain from getting too far in, into the into the facts here. What I will say yeah. is, is this: that um, there's a clear disregard for human life. Right. Uh, when an officer hears from bystanders in the crowd uh, warnings about the the medical state that George Floyd's in, like and, I can't breathe. You're saying I can't breathe. And, and to simply completely ignore those warnings from persons who were announcing that they even had some training in that regard, um, it's it's hard to explain the conduct uh, away at that point. Um, Rob, Rob, what about with the with the Eric Garner case? There was that phrase again: "I can't breathe." There was no indictment against the police officers. There was the federal government refused to do uh, bring civil rights charges. The family for for it took five years for the family to go through. A, a departmental trial to even get to mm -hmm. even get the officer fired. And for those five years, that police officer was collecting his check. He was getting a built in, according to their union contract, promotions. How do you expect the public to trust a system when you see things when they when they see things like that happening? Well, it's very difficult for the public to get a good perspective on what the motivation of the officer was. And that's what's going to be really key. Like like Charles said, you know, that's going to be that's going to come up. What was the motivation of the officer? Was his intent, you know, to con to commit murder? We understand recently that they actually reindicted the officer for a lower level of murder because they felt that the highest level of murder may be hard to convict. So as we're moving forward with this case, as this case unfolds, you know, you have to look at the motivation of the officer. Now we're hearing that based on some medical report uh, by the medical examiner that he had fentanyl in his system and that he didn't die from asphyxiation, right? So all of this information is going to come up. It's all going to paint the picture. The defense and the prosecution are going to play volleyball with the evidence, you know, to try to convince the jury that this was intentional murder by the officer, you know, and, um, and his, his intention was to cause death. So we're going to see this, this whole thing play out. Um, but again, what's very disturbing is the eight minute video um, because it contributed 
you know, to the death. So it's all how it's presented. It's all, you know, based on what the use of force guidelines are in, in Minneapolis. Um, and that's going to be key in this case, because if there's justification for being able to restrain a suspect on the ground by putting your knee in that particular area, and that's a legitimate tactic, then it's the agency that's not liable and not necessarily the officer. Right. But I find that to be extremely disturbing in this day and age with other incidents that have happened, you know, in other states. You know, I can't breathe. I can't breathe means I can't breathe. Right. You right. should adjust your tactics, you know, as you're dealing with that particular suspect. Um, and again, clearly he couldn't breathe because there was a death as a result of this incident. So it's very troubling to the community, but it's also very troubling to law enforcement officers as well. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about the use of force by police around the United States. Just how big a variation is there between departments? What's allowed, what's not allowed and what should not never be allowed moving forward? What changes need to be made? We're going to find out from our guests when we come back. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Don't go away. Yeah, yeah. What up? What up? What up? This is Styles Peter Ghost and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics and real people only on Hot 97. Yeah, Ghost Told You So. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the George Floyd civil case and the criminal case against the officers charged in his murder. With our panel joining us is Devin Jacob. He's a national civil rights attorney, co-counsel in the George Floyd civil case, and a former police officer. Devin, great to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Also with us is Dr. Robert Gonzalez. He's an assistant professor of criminal justice at St. John's University, former assistant commissioner for training with the NYPD and an NYPD officer for more than two decades. Rob, great to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. Also joining us is Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney, managing partner of the Tucker Moore Law Group, and also a former prosecutor in Kings County, New York, which is Brooklyn, New York. Charles, great to have you with us. Pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Charles, in, in terms in terms of the case against Derek Chauvin and the, the police officers, the cases, since the civil case was already settled, does that is that going to play an impact in any jury's mind, or will that be able to be brought into the criminal case? Okay, let me put my defense attorney hat back on. All right. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm arguing that all day. I'm I'm if I was defense attorney, I'd be my change of venue motion would be on the judge's desk as soon as I heard that information. Uh, and, and in large part because the civil case is based on liability, right? The municipality was being sued for their failure to protect uh, Mr. Floyd uh, from the actions of the individuals involved. So if the liability is accepted and there's a settlement that is reached, and again, arguably for different reasons, and I'm not gonna get into the reasons, and in fact, I agree on some level that, you know, the settlement needed to occur. Question is timing. Um, but if I'm representing uh, Officer Chauvin, then the timing is, is everything. Because in this moment in time, I have to convince 12 people that um, my guy was following the rules and regulations set forth by the department. So if there's something out there now that shows there's a conflict. Like, no, no, that, you know, that he possibly uh, was wrong and they've accepted that. Then, yeah, I'm saying you've now tainted my jury pool. And right. we need to take this trial elsewhere. You know, and for my argument, would probably be an egregious one that the only place that this trial would be able to take place where the jury could not possibly be tainted is like the moon. 
Right. Because with technology and everywhere, you know, everybody's, you know, there's no possible way. So, Judge, if you can't take me to the moon to try this case, I don't know how we're doing it. Uh, my client will not be entitled to a fair trial. Right, especially with everything that happened in Minneapolis, Devin. Looking around the United States, one of the one of the issues that is concerning many people is what's acceptable. Obviously, different different police departments now have different standards for how to restrain. All these things seem to come around restraining somebody when they're trying in the process of making an arrest. Either somebody that 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 is you know we saw with George Floyd complying with them, but other cases that somebody trying to walk away, they try to restrain them or whatever. And sometimes they're just there and they put, try to restrain them and something something tragic happens in terms of the these use of force. Like, how is it really a very wide range of what's acceptable from from your point of view? It, it, it's more than than that ish. I, I, I wish it, it could be just a, a simple policy change that is required. Um Realistically, there's, as we discussed earlier, there's there's certain ideologies that have been ingrained into policing and police agencies, and when you bring those to the street, and you you, you tell your officer that the standard the federal constitution requires is that your conduct be objectively reasonable, then the question becomes: you know, objectively reasonable in our community, in our department, or objectively reasonable across the United States. Um, it's interesting though. I mean, George Floyd died in the, in the streets and it, it was horrific, but there wasn't a real call to change until corporate America began to burn down. And we, we have to remember that. And, and so now there is this movement to force change to make sure something like this does not happen. I, I hope it's not lost, but the memory span of, of the, the, the people of, of America, frankly, is very short. Um, but, but there does need to be a national standard. That's what needs to happen at this point. And now's the time. The fire has been lit. Um, and so now's the time to push that issue. And it, it, I think it's for the legislature to give a mandate to the Department of Justice uh, to create a national standard and national training. Every other profession has it. Uh, in the medical profession, we have national standards. Right, that's true. I didn't even think about it that way. But for policing to call itself a professional or a profession and then not to act like a profession with standards, it's ridiculous. Um, it's time. Rob, what about what about that? You've helped design training programs and, and, and looking at the training. What about national standards? I think there would be a tremendous amount of uh, blowback against that, to be honest, to be honest. Well, 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 there will be. Um, but again, it's also up to the local legislators to sign on. We know that in New York City, after the George Floyd incident, there was legislation with the New York City Council to implement the I can't breathe policy. Um, which some police officers feel it has handcuffed their ability to do their job. But if you, you know, you're restraining an individual and he can't breathe, well, then you have to adjust your tactics, right? So it might start at the local legislature level or even on the state level, but there should be one federal mandate, perhaps even one federal czar, uh, for lack of a better term, to oversee all misconduct of policing, right? Right now, it's all independent based on local law, based on state law, but nothing federally where the Department of Justice has full authority to implement a national policy of use of force. The same way after 9-11, they came 
came out with a national policy on how to respond to disasters. And local law enforcement got funding to train their officers. Well, now's the time to do that on a local police officer level so that the local agencies have one policy, one use of force standard. We educate the entire nation on what that policy is. That way, everybody looks from the same lens. There's no confusion on what's appropriate, what's adequate, what's ethical, and what's even legal. If we have one standard, then everyone will be on the same page. And now's the time to do it. Charles, what about, oh, go ahead, guys. Yeah. Well, see, the policy is one aspect of it. You can create the best policies in the world. Talk to me about enforcement of those policies and who needs to be at the table are the unions, right? That's the biggest adversary out there, you know, with these uh, departments trying to implement. And then we see, uh, you know, there are prosecutors across the nation trying to implement some level of police reform. Shout out to Kim Gardner in St. Louis, you know, who needed prosecutors to come to her defense in, in her pushing uh, police reform in, in, in St. Louis. And she's getting an adversarial pushback by the union uh, when, when in fact they should be at the table, right? Because it's not about harming all officers. You know, there's a percentage of a lot, there's a real, the majority of the officers are doing good work, right? There's a small percent, percentage of the ones who are the bad actors. But when the action is trying to be held accountable for based on that bad action, the union jumps to the defense. And I think they lose credibility in a lot of in well, a I lot think of with the George, I think with the George Floyd case, I mean, we, we saw even the most uh the most staunchly pro law enforcement union saying there there is absolutely no defense. Lisa, with, but, but not all. Devin, but, go ahead. but uh that's the issue. I I mean it, Attorney Tucker hit the nail on the head. The fact is these municipalities enter into arm's length negotiations with these unions and they agree knowingly to certain um, restrictions and discipline. And then when something happens, they say, oh my gosh, we're bound. We're, we're, we can't do anything to discipline. So we have to leave them on our police force. And plus there's the, the, the false advertising, frankly, of these police departments. Mm-hmm. They, they, they offer themselves up as accredited uh, agencies. But what does that accreditation really stand for? And when was the last time we saw an accreditation agency actually pull an accreditation or suspend and investigate pursuant to a, a complaint to the association. I tested that theory out here in Pennsylvania. And let me tell you, it didn't get very far. Um, you know, the records I was told were sealed and not discoverable. And there was no enforcement from uh, the Pennsylvania Chiefs of Police Association in, in a case. And so to, to walk around and advertise yourself as accredited when the accreditation, unlike the medical profession where, you know, the There'll be suspensions of licenses, and, and you have to take nature. continued training to keep your to keep your license active. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one more thing: it's the funding. The funding mm-hmm. for these agencies right now. Doctors have malpractice insurance. Police officers should be required to retain their own personal insurance for this you know profession. If you need to pay them a little bit more to do that, that's fine. But this way, if an officer continues to misbehave, that officer won't be able to be insured. And if they do misbehave and hurt somebody, the person can be made whole. The burden is not on the taxpayers. And if, again, if they continue to misbehave, they will be pulled because they simply can't be on the force any longer without insurance. And let me tell you, there'll be some changes at that point. So you're saying, just so I understand, you're saying you think police officers 
individual police officers should be required to have malpractice insurance like all of our doctors do. Uh, again, we want to call ourselves a profession, then let's act like professionals. <laughs> Attorneys have malpractice insurance. Doctors have malpractice insurance. Why don't police officers? Why are the people paying to insure these professionals who then act with impunity and are not held, held accountable? If you, if you are a terrible police officer, which only a few are, but if you're a terrible police officer. So we want to point that out too, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of good ones and there's a lot of people a lot trying of, to change things now for the better. A lot, a of, lot of law enforcement. I work with police officers who are helping me in my cases to make good positive change. So I'm not, I'm, this is not an indictment of all police officers. This is an indictment of how the system is structured. If an officer cannot get through underwriting because they've had too many uh, problems, then they, uh, the system itself will necessarily weed them out. Like if you're a bad driver and you, you can't get car insurance. Exactly. Or whatever. Rob, what, what about that? What do you think about well, there that? Well, has, there now has been a lot insurance of insurance. I mean, look at security. So in New York State, security guards have to get a certification before they can go. Um, they have to get certified in some kind of way before yeah. they, I don't know how strict the standards are, but they have to get that before they get a job. And right. what about with police officers? Well, again, there are a lot of changes that are taking place. One of them is in the area of civil liability. What's happening in Minneapolis, like was mentioned previously in this conversation, is the people are paying that $27 million lawsuit. So again, it's it's just it's not fair to the public that they have to absorb such a heavy, heavy burden on paying some of these uh, settlements for police officers who are intentionally acting, you know, inappropriate or engaging in misconduct. So that is a, a discussion that's taking place. Um, but like was mentioned earlier with the unions, you know, the unions, they have a fiduciary responsibility, you know, to defend their officers. And they're going to continue to do that. But if they're not invited to the table, if they're not part of the discussion, then there's going to continue to be an adverse adversarial process between the unions and just the legislatures and the, and the police departments. And there won't be any progress. Um, Devin, what do you think is the best best case scenario? What do you think are, is the best possible outcome of this this trauma that this national trauma that that we've gone through? And also, you know, in, what do you think is the best thing in terms of making sure this never happens again that can happen? Well, look, unfortunately, it probably will continue to happen. And, and that's, again, because the, the public's memory is very short and we have a, a divided uh, legislature. We have, um, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to get consensus in one area. But there is a movement now for change, and it does include more players than, uh, than, than usual. So, you know, I think we need to push real hard. Look, you can it's it's very clear you can't you can't ignore the realities you know we recently had the the eight murders from the massage parlors uh, of, of asian persons right and that individual is taken into custody with a pit maneuver without incident and then you look to pennsylvania uh, the the christian hall case right which we covered on fox five you have a, a suicidal uh, young boy who's standing with his hands up with officers with you know tactical weapons and they just simply blow them away. So there is a clear uh, disparate treatment or we should at least say disparate handling of these incidents. We have to find out how and why and, and we do need to, to dig, but, uh, but the, the start is by uh, creating one system for all instead of 27,000 systems for all. <laughs> 
All right. Um, Devin Jacob, thank you so much for being with us for this episode of Street Soldiers. Um, Rob, what, what's the best thing in terms of, you know, improvements in training, improvements in the in the kind of police officers that we get? And is it is it more, is it a mindset? Is it actual techniques? What What's your take? What would you leave us with? Well, 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 I think as we discussed, the professionalization of law enforcement is taking place nationally, encouraging, you know, college requirements so that we can get more professionally um, uh, officers that have college credentials, get involved in less misconduct cases, less abuse of authority. They're more articulate. They have de-escalation uh, techniques that they develop in college. So I think encouraging, you know, police um, officers with college degrees across the board nationally would help to, again, uh, make uh, law enforcement more professional. Um, but again, I think there's going to be a lot of changes we're going to see come as a result of legislatures with the change of laws, uh, civilian oversight boards, body cameras are probably going to be a national standard, you know, where it provides an objective view as to what took place, not just through the scuffle, but from when the police initially get the assignment until the end when the person is placed under arrest. Right. A lot of times we just get a snippet of these type of things. So I think technology is going to have a huge effect on what's happening in law enforcement nationally. Like with the, with the body cameras that we've seen already, um, yep. Charles Tucker Jr., in terms of the, what do you think would be one of the lasting changes? We've, all, we've already seen um, African-American officers being promoted. We, we saw Chief Juanita Holmes here in New York City, the first female chief of department, African-American, longtime, lifelong police officer. Um, will that help? It will, but I think to, to Dr. Gonzalez's point, you know, you, you nationally, we need to start looking at, and I think uh, Attorney Jacob mentioned this as well, you need to start looking at the kind of officers you bring into these um, entities. And, you know, because, A, we need them to be more educated. We need them to be from the community they serve um, or some kind of cultural competent training that speaks to the community they may not be from, but that they understand and, and relate to. That helps them be uh, more of an effective police officer. And then another piece, which you know I think gets overlooked, and it goes to, uh, you know, I believe the attorney Jacob let the cat out the bag on that accreditation issue. I mean, good night, look. I mean, right. to, to bring these professionals in and you never really do any psychological training. Uh, right. or, or testing to verify that they're even qualified to hold a firearm. Because some of these officers, Lisa, when they get into these, these immediate combat issues or, or, or at the time, the emergency issues, and which requires an immediate response, the psychological components, you know, they're, it's not there. They're, 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 they're scared. They're they also the training. They're, they overreact. Why? Because they were never tested for whether or not they were competent to be able to react to begin with. That has to happen. That has to be part of the recruitment. And to find out if they've had any past issues, you know, some of them have issues from military experience that has affected their ability right. to police. So we got to deal with all those factors. And then, you know, we can talk about sovereign immunity and the, the fake accreditations and other points that Attorney Jake, because when we really deal with policing from a professional standpoint, and we recognize that the, the these officers need to protect all of us equally, protect and serve is not just meant for white individuals, but for the larger community, the black, the brown, the Asian community as a whole, 
so we all can feel safe. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Charles Tucker Jr. Thank you to all my guests, Devin Jacob, Dr. Robert Gonzalez, Charles Tucker Jr. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace, love, and justice for all.